This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Nehemiah chapter 8, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah. Uh, you'll find it in there. It's page 100 and 378 in my Bible. If that's any help to you, which I don't think it will be. It's nice to see Becky and Corey here this morning too. Becky has been exceptionally busy, haven't you, this past uh, number of weeks uh, going into the schools again with evangelism, with Logos Ministries International. And uh, you've been to lots of schools, haven't you? Lots of, all over both North and South. Isn't that fantastic, isn't it? It's great. And we pray much for you, Becky. Uh, you know, we pray in our home groups. We pray in our prayer meeting. I'm sure you hear Gary praying. I'm sure you hear him down there in Belfast. <laughs> He's praying up a storm for you, so he is. And, uh, and for all our missionary-minded evangelistic teams. All right, Nehemiah chapter 8. Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read it from the open square that was in the front of the water gate, from morning until midday, before the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. And beside him at his right hand stood Mathatiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Masaiah, and at his left, Pedadiah, Mishael, Malkiah, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Melshuma. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also Yeshua, and Bani, and Sherebiah, and Jamin, and Akub, and Shabbatiah, and Hoyah, and Masiah, and Keliatah, and Azariah, and Jezebad, and Hanan, and Pedaliah, and the Levites. Boy, I'm glad I don't have to read that all over again. <laughs> Helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. And so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was a governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way, and 
to eat and to drink, to send portions and to rejoice greatly because they understood the words that were declared to them. Now on the second day, the heads of the father's houses and all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. They found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should announce and proclaim in all the cities in Jerusalem saying, go out to the mountain and bring olive branches and branches of oil trees and myrtle branches and palm branches and branches of leafy trees to make booths as it is written. Then the people went out and brought them and made to, they made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or in the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths for since the days of Joshua the son of Nun until that day the children of Israel had not done so and there was very great gladness. Also day by day and from the first day until the last day he read from the book of the law of God and they kept the feast seven days and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. Amen. Amen. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther are companion books, sequels, if you will. And they concern themselves specifically with the events of the captivity and particularly the return of the captives to rebuild the temple and the walls around Jerusalem. 94 years prior to Nehemiah, Zerubbabel brought some of the exiles back, the first ones to come back. 57 years after Zerubbabel, Ezra the scribe that's mentioned here, he's an old man now, he's about 90. Uh, he also brought some back from captivity and uh, the temple was rebuilt and then a, a revival followed that. But now some 37 years later, Nehemiah comes to build down the broken walls of Jerusalem. According to chapter 615, it only took 52 days to accomplish the job. The whole book can be divided into two sections. The first six chapters uh, talk about the built, rebuilding of the walls. The next seven chapters really is about the reestablishing of the people. Their spiritual walls had been broken down as well as the physical walls of Jerusalem. And it was time to rebuild their spiritual walls. And so Nehemiah calls for a great gathering of God's people together. And uh, what was about to happen then uh, would be a lesson for us, both in revival in a personal sense and revival in a corporate sense. Uh, if, if our nation's ever going to be revived, it's going to have to start with us, isn't it? It begins with the believers, and it begins within the churches, and then hopefully that it moves out into the community, and then a nation uh, can be touched. And so let's have a little look at bits here and there in this particular chapter we've just read together. And let's see what is the evidence of real revival. There's much talk about revival, and we long for revival. But let's see what the evidence is for revival. First of all, the hearts of the people were spiritually prepared. There was a wanting, a longing. They knew that their spiritual walls were in a bad state of repair. They knew that. 
And what they needed was a Nehemiah or a Ezra uh, to shake them out of the lethargy they were in and get them going again and get them going for God. And so a day was set, a date was set, a time was set, a place was set where they would all come together. So that means they had some time to prepare themselves to think about this, to think about what's going to happen. Why are we meeting? What's going to be there? So there was time for preparation. Let me ask you a question. What preparation did you make for this Lord's Day? During the week, did you spend any time in the Word of God? Did you spend any time even meditating on spiritual things, on eternal things? Or did we just turn up? What Nehemiah didn't want and Ezra was these people just to turn up. You know, in a kind of a lazy, apathetic, ho-hum, just another type of service. He didn't want that. He wanted them to come with some kind of preparation to be ready. Nick Faldo, who was arguably probably Britain's best golfer, at least in the modern era, won, era, won six Open Championships, was number one on the world for 97 weeks in a row. So he's some golfer, isn't he? You don't have to know anything about golf to know he must have been good. Well, he was. But I heard him say one time about, you know, that obviously all sports, top sports people are, are, are supported uh, by big, big companies. You know, they give them lots to advertise their goods like Nike and so forth. In order then them to pay some of that back, then they have corporate days where whoever their sponsor is will have a corporate day and they're to show up. And often it would be amateurs would come and they would play a game called a pro-am game, professionals and amateurs. These amateurs may be business executives or they may be celebrities or whatever, and they come and have a round of golf with, with, with a great golfer. And he said that when he goes to any of these, even though it's only a fun day, there's nothing at stake, uh, there's no money involved really, there's no championship at stake, just a fun day. He said when he goes, he goes to the driving range first, the practice range, and he'll go there for maybe an hour, maybe even two hours, and he'll hit buckets and buckets of balls, and he'll loosen up, and he'll get exercised, and he, he'll sharpen his game, and he'll use different clubs, so that when he goes on the first tee, he's ready. He's not going to embarrass himself. He's ready because all eyes is on him. But he says, it never ceases to amaze me, he said, when the amateurs come. Because they arrive, invariably they're late arriving. They arrive, get their golf shoes on, take their clubs out of their boot of their car, walk up to the drive, not the driving room, walk up to the first tee, have a couple of practice swings, and that's it, they're ready to go. They take the biggest club out of the bag, which is driver, one of the hardest clubs to use. They take that out and they tee up with no stretching, no exercise, no practice, no nothing. Maybe they haven't left a club for a month. He says, guess what happens? Either they have a fresh air shot where they miss the ball completely, or they duff it and it goes about 10 yards down the fairway, or they slice it and it's out of bounds, and then they're embarrassed. No preparation whatsoever. The professional, even though it's only a fun game, would not dream of ever doing that. When we come to church, folks, we need a little bit of preparation, a little bit of thinking during the week so that we come ready 
for church. The people were in unity. Verse 1 says, Now all the people gathered together as one man. They were in unity. If I may, at the risk of boring you with golf, if I may use another golfing illustration, I promise you it's the last one. The Ryder Cup is a competition between some of the best golfers in America and some of the best golfers in Europe, which includes Great Britain and Ireland. And it's played every other year. No money involved, no prize money, just the thrill of winning the Ryder Cup for your team and for your country. Because golf is a, by and large, it generally is a, a game for you play for yourself. You're playing with an opponent, but you want to beat him, you play for yourself. But in the Ryder Cup, it's a team game, which is entirely different. So all year they play for themselves, but once every two years they play as a team. Now, the European team has won the last three competitions. They are the in-form team. And there's a one coming up again, uh, which will be played in America, and the pundits are saying, well, the Americans are sick of getting beat, so this time they're going to win. But if anything to go by the last time they played, it doesn't look as if they're going to, and I'll tell you why. Because during the last Ryder Cup, the American team were in disarray with each other. They weren't playing as a team. In fact, after they were beaten and at the press conference, one of the golfers had a real public go at the team captain who was sitting at the table with them. That was embarrassing. And everybody then knew this was not a team. They weren't playing in unity. But the other team, the European team, they won not necessarily because they had the better golfers, that could be argued, but because they were the better team. They played as a team. They played for each other. They were rooting for each other continually. And so they sat at the table with big wide smiles because they, had, because they were the best team. There's something about unity that God uses, particularly when it comes to revival. If God can get just a small bunch of men and women in unity, there's no telling what God can do with just a small group of people in unity. In Psalm 133, which you probably know quite well, I'm sure, Psalm says, How good, how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It's like the dew of Hermon, descending from the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. When men and women get together in unity, God commands a blessing. Now, unity works either in the church or in the world, because it's a principle that causes a power and a force to be released. Take, for instance, do you remember in Genesis 11, at the Tower of Babel, and how that, because they were of one language and of one speech, they imagined and believed that they could build this great tower uh, and this would be a, a, a place of worship for them. 
And they were meant to do it and could have done it and would have done it except God said, let us go down and confound their language because they're at one. They're in unity and they all speak the same language and they're all going in the same direction. So let's confuse their tongues. Babel means confusion. Let's confuse their tongues and scatter them. And that's exactly what happened. But if the church can get in unity, if we, even as an individual church, if all individual church could be completely united, and then if we as the church of Christ, even in this nation, could be united, there's no telling what could happen in the kingdom of God if we could get united. Paul says in Ephesians 4, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to what worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's the devil who will try to cause disunion for us to be not united for us to be separated that's the work of the evil one because he knows if we ever get together in complete unity then devil look out because God can use that for his glory in Philippians just across the page because of time and leaving out quite a number of scriptures here, but you can find lots of scriptures speaking about unity. Philippians 2 and 1, Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, of any comfort of love, of any fellowship of the Spirit, of any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. What happened the day of Pentecost? They were all in one place, in one accord, and the Holy Spirit came. The heart of Christ's great prayer for his church in John 17, that they may be one even as we are one. And so the people were united. They had a hunger for the word of God. Verse 1, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had commanded Israel. Five books, the Pentateuch, the Torah, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Acts, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's what they had. The book of the law the law of Moses. We have 66. The canon is complete. We don't need any more. But we've got 66. Verse 17, all the way from Genesis through to Esther, are historical books. Then the five philosophical or poetical books Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then the last 17 are prophetical books, Isaiah to Malachi. In the New Testament, of course, 
We have the Gospels, the Church Epistles, the Prison Epistles, the Pastoral Epistles. We have a wonderful little personal letter to Philemon. We have the little book of Jude. We have Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, 1st, 2nd Peter. All of those books together are absolutely wonderful. Uh, the great doctrinal book like Romans, or the practical book like James, or the short, hard-hitting book like Jude, with such a wealth of the Word of God at our disposal. They had only five. We have 66. Have you ever read all 66? They had only five. And have you ever gone through to read the whole Bible book by book, I guarantee you, you get into Leviticus, you read the first chapter, and you're thinking, I wish I could skip this whole book. But that was only one of the ones they had. But there was such a hunger for the Word of God. See, the Word of God, they hadn't been reading it. They hadn't been hearing it preached. They hadn't been studying the Word of God. And now there was a hunger for it. Something happens to our spiritual lives whenever we feed on the Word of God. If you do not eat your dinner, your supper, your breakfast, try that for a few days, see how you feel. But if we do not feed on the Word of God... Your spiritual man inside will be weak, anemic, and tired and weary. It needs fuel. It needs food. It needs the manna of the Word of God. That's why we have got it. It's for us. And if you feed on it, at least some part of it every day, get some spiritual food into you. And so here they are, and they're hungry for the Word of God. They came with their families. They all turned up. Now, I know that bringing your children to church is no guarantee that they're going to follow the Lord. I know that. Equally, there's many a man or woman who has found Christ whose parents never darkened the church door. Hezekiah was a godly son of an ungodly father. But then he was a godly father of an ungodly son. So there's no guarantee God has no grandchildren. But on average, for the most part, if we bring our children to church, for the most part, we'll follow the Lord. And even if they backslide and go away from the Lord for a time, it will never leave them. And they're never going to be happy in the world because they know better. Because we brought them to the house of God. And so they came with their families. You know, during the 1859 revival, it wasn't just the adults who were getting saved. It was the kids. God was coming into the schools. And it was the wee children in the schools who were getting on their knees and crying out unto God that was affecting the teachers. The service lasted a long time. Now, I'm not advocating long services, by the way, and I say this. 
from daybreak to noon. So we're talking here five or six hours. It's a long service, isn't it? Except if you go to the Ukraine where we go to, and then it could last, who knows how long it could last. You know when it's going to start, but you never know when it's going to finish. And nobody leaves. They love it. Pastor Alexander told us the first time he went, he says, you know, we didn't have this for 70 years. He says, it's not so long ago the KGB were coming in and listening to what we were saying. So now he says that we are free. He says we're going to go for it. And boy, they go for it, don't they, Clifford? Pfft, whole service is 100 miles an hour. I am, you see, after the worship prayer, I'm exhausted. The whole service is at 100 miles an hour. They just absolutely go for it. Service lasts a long time. Ezra preached for hours. No visual aids, no PowerPoints, <laughs> no video clips, nothing. Just the plain, unadorned, unadulterated word of the living God for hours. Today, many Christians can go to a movie for two hours or go to a football match for an hour and a half. And they go to the church and after the preacher's preached five minutes, they're looking at their watch. Ah, you say, but this is a visual age, David. And that's true. It's a visual age, isn't it? We, we, we watch more than we listen. My generation, I'm old enough to remember a time when I didn't have television. All we have was radio. It wasn't that televisions weren't invented. It wasn't that old. Just we couldn't afford one. <laughs> just seen somebody looking at me there. I know he's white-haired, but I'm not that old. We just couldn't afford one. So we listened to the radio. But you had to listen. And a whole generation grew up listening. Now, it's a visual generation. We watch, but we don't listen as well. So some people say, well, that's why you should only preach 10 minutes, Pastor, because... People doesn't listen anymore. I think it's just an excuse. I think it's the hunger for the Word of God. Hey, listen, Ezra was no Billy Graham. He was no T.D. Jakes. He was a 90-year-old priest scribe. And he preached for probably at least five hours. Fair play to him. That's not bad for a 90-year-old man, is it? So I don't think it was his oratorial skills that kept them interested. I think it was their hunger for the Word of God. That's what did it. It kept their attention. There was reverence for the Scriptures. It says, And the ears of all the people were attentive to the Word. Verse 3, verse 4, And Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood which they had made for the purpose. Verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. If I had to ask all of you to stand up when I read that chapter this morning, that would have been appropriate. That would have been a, a good thing to do. It would have been a scriptural thing to do. And so all the people stood up. Notice that the preaching of the word was given a special place in the service and this people stood to attention. Now, I'm not going to embarrass you by asking you to do this, but did you bring your Bible to church today? And if not, why not? 
I know that some of you over there have got electronic Bibles on your phones and your tablets and all the rest of it, and that's fine. But do you bring yours today? I know that a lot today is using the screen and putting the words up and all the rest. I, I have resisted that so far, and I'll tell you why. Because once you do that, nobody brings their Bible. Because it's going to be up on the screen. So why bring your Bible? Listen, when you walk out of your house in the morning and you have your Bible in your hand, that's a witness. That's saying to somebody, I am going to the house of God today. And I've got my sword with me. And I'm going to listen and I'm going to learn something. Simple, isn't it? Bring your Bible to the house of God. If you've learned difficulties, then that's a different story. I understand that. But if not, bring your Bible to the house of God. There was reverence for the Scriptures. The Word was preached in a way that people understood it. Thirteen Levites were named, and I'm not going over those names again, as the ones who helped people understand the law. Ezra was preaching it. They were teaching it. Not everybody understood the law. So there was men trained on hand, ready to help them to understand the law. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? They did everything in their power to make the word clear and plain so that those listening would understand what was being said. Preachers should never take it for granted that their audience understands what they're saying. That's why you try to make it as clear and as plain as you can without dumbing it down. There's a, a, a tendency to dumb things down. Well, we can't dumb the Bible down, but we can make it plain and we can make it clear. Somebody was asked to describe a preacher's message one day and he says, it was good and original. He says, the problem was the good parts weren't very original and the original parts weren't very good. <laughs> so he wasn't very impressed. To be able to discuss another preacher's sermon one day, one said to the other, what did you think about it? He says, it reminded me of the peace of God. It passed all understanding. <laughs> He said, what did you think about it? He says, it reminded me of the mercy of God. It endured forever. <laughs> so it was preached in a way that people understood it. They got it. Now I know that we need the Holy Spirit to help us to preach it in a way where people will get it. And we need the Holy Spirit to help the people to get what we have just preached. Because these are just not ordinary words. This is the Word of God, isn't it? And so actually, before I preach the Word of God, I ask the Holy Spirit to help me make it clear, plain, understandable. You should ask the Holy Spirit to help you to hear it and understand it. There was a genuine, heartfelt repentance. When they heard the word of God, they began to weep and grieve and mourn. 
Bible says the Word of God is alive, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, to the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the very thoughts and intents of our hearts. Jonathan Edwards, many centuries ago, he was that short-sighted, he had to hold his Bible here to read it. But when he read the Word of God, the power of God was so upon it that people began to weep and to cry and to repent. Some were holding on to the pillars of the church they were thought they were sliding into hell itself. He preached a sermon, sinners in the hand of an angry God, and people were crying out in the church, thinking they were sliding into hell itself. You know revivals happen when that happens, eh? See, after years of neglect, they were being restored again. Those broken down spiritual walls were being repaired. And there was a heartfelt repentance. But then after the repentance, the joy of the Lord breaks forth. The word went out throughout the camp. Stop weeping. Stop mourning. Stop being grieved. After the faithful preaching and teaching of the word and the heartfelt repentance, now the joy of the Lord came. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. When Philip was preaching in Samaria, the Word of God, the Bible says, the people gave heed to the Word of God, and it says there was great joy in that city. When they repented and they came to Christ, there was great joy in that city. Two of the key marks of any revival is repentance and joy. And repentance comes first, and then there's great joy. In the 1859 revival, up to 50,000 people made their way to the botanic gardens in Belfast by train, by tram, by bus, walking. And as they made their way there to hear about the revival and to hear the revival testimonies and stories, they said that the, the volume of singing could be heard all over the city. The trains were full of people singing the songs of Zion. When they walked up the streets to go up to Stramillus there, they were singing. There's such joy. And there was several preachers preaching to that vast crowd. And people were getting saved in the midst of it. And people would spontaneously shout out and cry out. And people would spontaneously sing out the songs of Zion. There was such joy in the midst of the revival. The Welsh revival was noted for its singing. Welsh love to sing, don't they? They love to sing. There's probably more male choirs in Wales than any country in the world. Do you ever hear them at those rugby matches? Boy, they can sing, can't they? Well, during the revival, boy, they did sing. And every revival brings out its own songs. Every revival has its own songs that just comes from the Spirit of God. 
And suddenly, everybody just catches on to it. And they sing. And one of the things it was noted for was it's singing. Yes, great repentance, but great rejoicing afterwards. Philip, the Ethiopian eunuch, again on Acts 8, after Philip had ministered and after the Ethiopian eunuch got saved and after he got baptized, it says, And the Lord caught Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. <laughs> after the repentance came great joy. And then lives are lived in the light of of eternity. In verse 13 and 18 we read there, they were to make booths on the roof or at the side of their houses. This was the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was a time of rejoicing for the harvest. But God wanted to remind them continually, even to this day some do this, to remind them of those 40 years in the wilderness. And so he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go up the mountain. I want you to bring down those broad-leafed leaves from the trees. I want you to make a little booth, a little lean-to. Get a little hut, if you will, for seven days. And I want you to go under it. To remind yourself, in the midst of all of the blessing and all of the harvest, not to get fat and lazy with it, with God's blessings, but to remind where you came from, what God brought you from, to live in the light of eternity, to remind you that you're strangers and pilgrims in the land. In the great chapter of Hebrews 11, I talked about Abraham going out, not knowing where he was going, but seeking for a city whose builder and maker was God. And they were strangers and pilgrims in the land. And we in this earth at this moment are strangers and pilgrims in this land. We're looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. This world is not my home. I am just a passing through, the old song says. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. <laughs> lives lived in the light of eternity. Again, one of the hallmarks of revival is people suddenly get a glimpse of eternity. And the things of this world grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And they're no longer living for this world. They're living in the light of eternity. And then finally, there was a complete separation from the world. In chapter 9, just the first three verses only. Now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth with dust on their heads. Then those of Israelite lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. And for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. 
there was a lot of intermarrying, intermixing, interbreeding. And God says, no. Separate yourselves. Sanctify yourselves. You're a people unto me. A complete separation from this world. 1 John 2, 15, 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. James said in 4.4, friendship with the world is enmity with God. We should be a friend to the world. We should reach out to the world around us. We should endeavor every way, if we can, to reach into every man's world. But that's a different thing than becoming like them. Now, Wilson here, we just prayed for there at the start of the service. Wilson, in case you don't know, he goes to different, these gigs, these rock things, and he goes with his jacket and his cross on the back, and he goes there, not to become like one of them, but as a witness to them, as a friend to them. Jesus was the friend of sinners, wasn't he? He didn't cut himself off from sinners. He went among them. That was one of the criticisms he got. He's a friend of sinners. But he reached them. And he witnessed. And he loved them. Friendship with his world is enmity with God. John 17, 25, the world doesn't know him, doesn't know God. Jesus prayed, O righteous Father, the world has not known you but I have known you. 1 John 3, the world doesn't know us. 1 John 3, 12, the world doesn't know us. It doesn't know him, and it doesn't know us. Romans 3, 18, the world is guilty before God. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. All of that gives us reason not to be of this world. And when revival comes to an individual or to a church or to a nation, there is a complete separation. One of the great things that happened in our country during the great revival was that crime dropped alarmingly in a good way. On the 12th day in 1859, there was not one arrest made. You know, there's still stone thrown in those days. I think this is a new phenomenon. It wasn't. But on the 12th day in 1859, not one arrest was made. Police were not called to anything. There was no need. Pubs were closing. Because people were separating themselves from the world. They had enough of it. Now they want it Christ and Christ alone. Let me just read this in closing. I 
An awakening occurred around the world in the early 1900s. It was predominantly observed in Wales. Evan Roberts was a coal miner. He's tall, blue-eyed, young and thin. His dark hair curled over forehead and ears. But he harbored a deep burden for souls and prayed earnestly for revival. At age 25, having just begun studying for the ministry, he asked his pastor for permission to hold some evening meetings. Only a few people came at first. But within days, village shops were closing early for the services. People left work to secure seats at church. The building was packed and roadways clogged with would-be attendees. Services often lasted until 4.30 in the morning. Now, if you've been praying for revival, I hope you're prepared for that. Sins were confessed, sinners converted, homes restored. In neighboring towns, Robert saw similar results. All across Wales, theaters closed, jails emptied, churches filled, football matches were canceled to avoid conflicting with the revival. Welsh miners were so converted that their pit ponies had to be retrained to work without the prodding of curse words. On March 29, 1905, Evan Roberts opened a series of meetings at Shaw Street, Liverpool, out of Wales into England, out of the country into the city. Thousands thronged around the church, and people poured in from all parts of England, Scotland, Ireland, the continent, and America. Multitudes were converted or found new joy in Christ. Often, Roberts didn't even get to preach. The very sight of him went rifts and rivers of emotion through the crowds. And when he did speak, his message was quiet and simple. Obedience to Jesus, complete consecration to his service, receiving the Holy Spirit, and allowing ourselves to be ruled by him. And that changed the nation of Wales. Hmm. Boy, do we ever need that, do we? Jeremiah Lumphier, a layman, accepted the call of the North Reformed Church, Dutch Church in New York, to begin a full-time ministry of evangelism. He visited door-to-door, -door, placed posters in boarding houses, prayed, but the work languished, and Lumphier grew discouraged. As autumn fell over the city, Lumphier decided to try noontime prayer meetings, thinking that businessmen might attend during the lunch hours. He announced the first one for September the 23rd, 1857. This is just two years before the revival in Ulster. But this was a precursor to it. He sat and waited. Finally, one man showed up, then a few others. By the next week, 20 came. The third week, 40. Someone suggested the meetings occur daily, and within months the building was overflowing. Other churches then began to open their doors, and the revival started to spread to other cities. Offices and stores closed for prayer at noon. Newspaper carried the story. Even telegraph companies set aside certain hours during which businessmen could wire one another with news of the revival. The revival, sometimes called the Third Great Awakening, lasted nearly two years and between 500,000 and 1 million people were said to have been converted. Out of it came the largest outlay of money for philanthropic and Christian causes America had ever experienced. And that just happened because one man in one city decided to hold a prayer meeting. And then the hunger came. And then the repentance came. And revival came. And then it spread from across the Atlantic. And four young men in Kells heard about it, and they decided that they would meet together for prayer. And very few came. 
and it was a few weeks before one person got saved. And then another, 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 another. Then other churches opened up. And before you knew it, revival had come to our wee country of Ulster. <laughs> 100,000, a tenth of the population of Northern Ireland got saved in one year. Can you imagine if a tenth of people in Moira got saved in one year? Wouldn't all the churches here be rejoicing? Can you imagine a tenth of all the people of County Antrim or County Armagh? But a tenth of all the people of Ulster, 100,000 in just one year's time. Wouldn't that be phenomenal? But that's what revival can do, amen? So let our hearts be hungry. Let us look for God to do it again. You know, the countries that experienced revival were usually at their lowest ebb. Argentina was defeated militarily by the British. Their economy was bust. They were on the verge of bankruptcy, and God began a revival that's going on to this day. <laughs> so our country's not in good shape, sure it's not. And after this election, dear knows what shape it'll be in. The whole of these British Isles. But that would be a good time for revival, wouldn't it? So let's pray and ask God to send it. Where does he start? Here, with me, with you, with us. That's where he starts, in our hearts. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk. Thank you.